0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Shakespeare on Screen, a podcast where I meet up with friends to talk about adaptations of the Bard on on screen. Uh, this week, um, Alex came back again to continue our Hollow Crown series, and we're going to talk about—we're going to do it two for the first and probably only time we're ever going to—no, maybe not only time, but— so far, only time we're going to talk about two plays in one episode. We've talked about two movies, but not two plays. So we're covering the Henry IV plays, adaptations by the Hollow Crown, this week. Hi, Alex. How are you doing?
1: Excellent. How are you? And the reason behind that, why well, I am pushing for both, is because Hollow Crown really does play into the sequel effect of of these plays and mm-hmm. combines them more so than any other
0: well um maybe to dive right in or, or to preview what we're going to talk about i think that the the director richard Eyre's decisions um you talked to earlier and i i do agree rupert gold is much more made the plays much more richard ii much more cinematic in terms of gorgeous shots and compositions mm-hmm. but what i'll give real credit for air of doing is that he made the smartest of cuts in part one to make part two work completely as a sequel yes he and, and make it feel like part two is the second half and the conclusion of the henry the story
1: Yes, uh, I absolutely agree with that. And we can get into how it works on the text versus uh, in the holocron. But yes, the holocron, obviously, they knew that they were doing both parts. And so it really does feel like you're watching one very long episode or one long movie if you watch them back to back like I did. last Oh, week. nice. i
0: just, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, like Kill Bill lord of the rings exactly you know, yeah like, no this is just one really long movie that's yeah so uh getting into it uh like like i said um this one was uh directed by richard air um he's done just the, some sta- a lot of uh stage direction um he's done a couple of uh Mainstream movies, but I don't think anything that many people would scream of like, "Oh, that's a great one."
1: Yeah, I looked him up a while ago. I can't remember
0: anything he did. Yeah. Uh, looking at now, okay, the one that I I've seen, like off the top of just looking at his IMDb D-DB page, is a uh, Stage Beauty. That's a very oh fun, yes. That's a fun movie. It's it's um check it out it's anyone listening uh who hasn't seen it it's about uh the restoration era when charles ii ordered that or maybe not ordered but they began to have women play the women parts in plays which had never been done before and it's all about the the last big male actor who played women's parts and how he deals with being put out of work it's very good but this time we're talking about the play that uh... movie in, in this podcast before with alex actually uh, that shows claire danes can actually act <laughs> oh right yes of course uh
1: i never said she couldn't i said she did not in that particular movie, but that was, that was last time. Uh, just looking at these plays, I know you usually ask this question, but I'm interested to know what's your history with both versions of, of Henry the Fourth. Did you encounter them both at the same time or was it, you knew about part one long before part
0: two? Oh, well, great question. And the honest truth of the matter is just like most of the histories, I only really started loving them and checking them out about last year. Honestly, uh, In college, I read Henry V. And like many people, people are misled and, and told you, oh, you can totally read and watch Henry V without all the other plays in the cycle before. Just like with Richard III, they're like, oh, no, 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 you don't need to, no. You can just enjoy Henry V. But The Hollow Crown made me realize just how important the henry the fourth plays are for not just the understanding the character of henry the fifth but also all the it's so weird henry the fifth well we'll get to that but it it begins with the death scene of falstaff and if you come in fresh it's just who is this guy and why are all these poor people in the middle of of henry the fifth other than we need comic relief
1: yeah, actually, it's just my, my story is the exact same. And I imagine a lot of people's are because Henry V is the most popular. Uh, I also, my first exposure to the Henriette was also, it was in university. We read Henry V. And and then I, I also watched the Brana version around the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it wasn't anywhere close to my favorite Shakespeare play. And it didn't really resonate with me. And I can appreciate, you know, I liked, uh, I liked the Brana version, still do. But other than that, it was kind of just. Yeah, it was there. There were some great speeches, cool. Um, and I think that you you hit upon it exactly that Henry V is not a standalone play. Richard III isn't either, but it is more so. Um, yes. you get a lot more out of Richard III by reading, especially uh, Henry the Part Three, but mm-hmm. really both Part Two and Three. Um, but Henry V, I think, loses so much without the the backstory of of how. Uh, I think that is essential for it.
0: Yeah. Well, you understand so much about this character and so much of why the the court and when we get to the Hall of Crown's interpretation of Henry V, but what what, what I love when, as a preview for that, the entire time the French's just dismissal and of Henry V all stems from them as well knowing about his East Cheap days and thinking, oh, this guy's a total clown this is an utter pushover we have nothing to worry about
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and that's part of the mystery of Hal and Hal getting into uh, both of our little English majory and Shakespeare scholar hats on for a long time a long long time Hal was actually not really the go-to character for both actors and Academics. No, I, we'll what, get into what, it eventually, but
1: Falstaff overshadows, well, obviously part two, but if we're just looking at part one, which is
0: more yeah. Hal's story, Falstaff overshadows it completely. I think what we, we should talk about that in just a second. I just want to say also, though, one of my favorite characters, and Alex will know how much I relish this character, but the character of Hotspur was for... Honestly, Century is the most popular character in Henry the Fourth, Part One, other than Falstaff. Yeah, everyone wanted that. to play. Everyone wanted to play Hotspur, and to a degree, I think Hotspur is still to this day, for anyone who d- is scared of playing Falstaff, I think Hotspur is kind of a Mercutio level character. Of he's such a fun supporting character that the actors want to go for, for Hotspur. That said, Do you know,
1: uh, out of everyone, all the big names that this particular Holocram production got, you know, Joe Armstrong is not... Yes, I do one. understand
0: that, yes. Oh yeah, well, that being said though, star power and the choice to have a long... I mean, it's a little bit where he was at in his career. It was just before he... W- That very year, he'd already played Loki. Tom Hiddleston had already played Loki in uh, Thor. And I think Sherlock had already come out by 2012. Ooh, maybe, no, maybe not.
1: I'm blanking on my my years. It was around that time, though.
0: But Hiddleston is like, yeah, he's a rising talent. Yeah, for sure. But but I mean, obviously, just the thrill to play Henry V, of course, is attractive to any actor. And to say... But will you be the first actor on film, or one of the only actors on film to do it for three plays? Ooh, that is big and exciting I, for, for I, an actor.
1: I agree, and obviously that's there's a reason why the Hallerkeren went with him for all three. But I stick to my conclusion of they shouldn't have. <laughs> um, I I think because and and I, I probably mentioned this on during the Richard the second I don't know their casting choices, but it really does seem like. They cast Hiddleston to be Henry V, and he's good as Henry V, and he's actually really good at the end of Henry IV, Part Two, as he's becoming Henry V. But I will, I'll stick by my, I don't see him as the immature version of Hal.
0: Let's save that for just. A bit. <laughs> let's fair enough. Let's talk a little bit fun factoids that everyone knows. And maybe some that listeners that don't know, that aren't super Shakespeare nerds like us. Uh, so that you you touched on it, Falstaff, this wonderful wonderful character, this wonderful clown, that is one of the best examples, and it's definitely obviously Shakespeare himself felt it of this character that was fun that the audiences responded to in levels that. He never expected. I, 100%, I'm certain.
1: Probably, and I've been going down the Falstaff rabbit hole. Uh, full disclosure: so I came across Henry. I first read Henry the Fourth, Part One, and around the same time I was actually directing a child's production of it, which is hilarious um, <laughs> in retrospect. Uh, shout out to Toronto Shakespeare in Action, um, where we were doing this now. I had by then already read a lot of Shakespeare criticism, including, you know, Harold Bloom's *Invention of the Human*. And what he does in that book is he says, you know, Shakespeare invented two pillars of humanity. On one side, you have Hamlet. On the other, Falstaff. And, and Harold Bloom is in love with Falstaff. And then, so I, I went into this the play knowing very little about *Henry the Part One*, except that, you know, Falstaff is the greatest invention ever, and he is, he is the best <laughs> thing Shakespeare ever did. And I was very underwhelmed. <laughs> I, I am not I'm not an absolute even to this day, I'm not an absolute Falstaff lover, um, in, in many ways. But I as I've been going down the rabbit hole, I, I have been discovering, you know, why he had the impact he did. And and especially if you look at the context of the time and the tropes Falstaff was playing on. I get it. That's that's where I've landed on. I don't love Falstaff as much as, as others seem to, but I absolutely get why he
0: is what he is. Well, I agree with you in terms of that he's one of the great examples of a character of overhype that often happens. It's actually fun. Like I never got to talk about this really in a Shakespeare, but that's something that Shakespeare himself often deals with of just people just vaunt Shakespeare up to such a level that that when people just find I just thought I thought it was nice. But I don't think it was amazing. I didn't think it changed my life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That just to have the temerity to say that to some is blasphemy. Yeah.
1: But you you can't can't treat
0: Shakespeare's work like that because when it becomes the gospel, it loses what Shakespeare was. Shakespeare is not. And I, I love that I learned and can appreciate more from my college education. Shakespeare, but Shakespeare does not belong to the academics, period. He belongs to the people.
1: Absolutely. And that's Shakespeare, why,
0: was, uh... sorry. Shakespeare was... Shakespeare like, was... Uh, I'll use this metaphor. Bear with me. He was the... He was Michael Bay with talent. I wouldn't go that far, but I get the sentiment.
1: He was, you know, he's populist. And more so than Shakespeare being populist, Falstaff and the whole East Sheep scene in this play in part one and part two spoke to people on a level that had never been seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the carnivalesque existed. I'm completely messing up my timelines. I don't know when Rabelais was, for example. But you have all these you know, subversions of, of morality. And that's what mm-hmm. Falstaff is. He's the lord of misrule. He's a subversion of morality. His catechism is screw honor honor is for suckers <laughs> and and that's fantastic and that's why he became what he became like basically that that speech I mentioned this yesterday that one of his final monologues the honor is for suckers monologue mm-hmm. um, right as he's yeah. going off to die is so impactful because you are watching this play if you are you know if you're in the Renaissance, if you're in 1596 whatever, you're watching this play and you know how it's supposed to end. Falstaff is this completely, you know, horrible, drowning in vices and he is supposed to reform. And then he gives that monologue about honor. And he's like, okay, here it is. Here's the part where he's reforming. Oh, no, no, (laughs) except that he does. I was, when I was rewatching part one, I missed it both when we did the reading and, the first time I watched it at the very end, one of his last lines is basically uh, if the king rewards me, I am going to reform and I'll give up sack and I'll live a noble life. And you either take that as well. The sequel either just screws that completely or it's if the king rewards him and the king never really rewarded him. So he doesn't have
0: to reform. Well, <laughs> to take well. I think that's getting into part two. And so that's a yeah. I want to just table that for just a tiny bit. You know, thinking about it and appreciating it, the the only author that may my, that made as legendary of an impact on on culture in the time of Shakespeare was arguably the first novelist, Cervantes, and he had that wicked subversion as well with with Quixote.
1: That's a fair point.
0: And, and Quixote is is honestly more of the tragic version of of what Falstaff is of just the, that that's sl- slow recognition even as he Shakespeare is because by the time Shakespeare writes these wonderful medieval stories of of valor and the glory of Henry IV and Henry V it's already kind of become dated so there's there's no real castle fights anymore it's begun to be you rely more and more on pistols and armor is becoming less and less convenient And so it's already become... It's becoming anachronistic. And Shakespeare and Cervantes kind of tapped into that of saying, hey, wait a minute. This is actually kind of stupid. This actually... Or it can be. And
1: even as you were saying, the the idea of these castle fights was was becoming anachronistic or becoming outdated. We see this most explicitly in, in Richard II, where he sets up this grand duel and then pulls the fake out as we talked about. But even in henry the fourth part two we get another the same kind of fake out but in part one you have uh not including henry the fifth you know the the closest thing to an actual battle mm-hmm. um the hollow crown and uh, other productions as well play up the the actual fight between henry's forces and percy's forces but mm-hmm. if you read the text it's it's completely subverted there's Douglas goes around killing a few people, and then henry and um uh, and Percy get into single combat, but it's not nearly the same level as a battle that you get in the uh, the York trilogy, for example.
0: Oh, nothing like that, nothing well, that's actually also somewhat of a misunderstanding of Henry V as well, but that's a whole other discussion, right, yeah, and that too is not a battle play for. Despite
1: the fact that it takes place in war, because and this is the the brilliance of of Shakespeare is that he's taking these historic situations, and unlike and as much as I like the York trilogy, unlike the York trilogy, where he's kind of playing out history as history, here he's just mm-hmm. plucking these characters and he's he's made them completely his own, which is another reason why Falstaff is huge, because and we can get into the old castle rigmarole, yes. but <laughs> Falstaff is completely Shakespeare. Uh, just plucked into this historical, you know, setting.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever seen Alex any of uh, of Upstart Crow?
1: Yes, I haven't come across any Henry the Fourth stuff though. I, okay, I'm there's a whole episode
0: in season two where they talk. Yeah, I haven't there. <laughs> okay, to, to mildly spoil you, there's a, there's a point where where the one of the characters talks about how they want about it. Will's got it in his head like I want to do another Henry so I'm going to do Henry VIII and everyone keeps on saying like Henry VIII was a jerk there's no way you can make him interesting or 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 rather tolerable and and then and Kate the character says oh you should do Henry V and she and Shakespeare just repeats time and time again like Henry V was boring <laughs> He was just this boring, pious guy that also, despite his religiosity, also went around killing people. So it's like, how could I possibly make a person like that dramatic? And it, it's facile, but it is getting at, at the point of that. What we have about Henry V, there are... It's weird, because Shakespeare both went on some urban legends out there of... Uh, there were these legends out there. Like the, Shakespeare didn't make it out of whole cloth that in his younger days Henry V was a bit of a bit of a bit of a, a, a ne'er do well, but nowhere near the level that like that Shakespeare presents it.
1: Right, and
0: yes, yeah, so... it would be
1: interesting. I haven't looked into what the thought at the time of Henry V was. What people watching. Henry the Fourth, Part One, in in fifteen ninety six, I believe that's when it's what they would think about how and and again just to, I I we're circling around the issue. So you have the character of Falstaff, who is completely a Shakespeare creation, but in the original version was called yes. John Oldcastle, yes. who was a real person, who was martyred. I think he was barbecue grilled alive. Or yeah, he like was alive yeah. because
0: yeah. he because he was a lollard.
1: Yeah, so. so he uh. You know, the story goes that they, the uh, the family got so mad at yes. Shakespeare that he was basically forced to write in this epilogue at the end of Part 2 saying, look, Falstaff is not Old Castle, leave me alone.
0: Although there are also rumors that at one point he was called Old Castle. He was.
1: That's not a rumor. If you look at, we have the, the Cordo, uh, the first oh. published version, and he is called Old Castle. The <laughs> so no, he, is, he was definitely called Old Castle, Changed the name to Falstaff and just said, it's a different character. Get over it. <laughs> yeah,
0: It's weird because yeah. Old Castle did appear in the York cycle. But Yeah. yeah. Completely nobody forgettable likes, in that one. Nobody likes to talk about Falstaff. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: But the, the point was that because he created this character of, of Falstaff, he essentially... Highlight that version of of Hal Falstaff is, you know, you have that line in Henry the Fifth, the king has killed his heart, but Fal that's because Falstaff in Part One, especially, he is Hal's, um, you could call it Hal's id if you want to get Freudian about it, Mm -hmm. but he is the amplification of that version of Henry the Fourth
0: or Henry the Fifth. Yes. Well, it's the two sides that Henry... Henry IV in particular is a play that is... All of the the Henriette is defined by foils, but this one in particular is almost the pinnacle of foils, of that you have two types of of father figures. You have the the ruffian, fun-loving Falstaff, who is fun to be around, but when push comes to shove, he's actually... Has no conscience and is actually a jerk uh, versus the boring but but decent-minded and decent at heart henry iv and then you have two versions of of the ambitious youth you have henry v or hal at this point being this this vagabond kind of wastrel and Maybe he's conning the poor people and conning the court by his his ruffian ways, or, but maybe he's not. And then you have on the other side Hotspur being this hot-headed idiot that is desperate for glory, even when all this logic tells him he needs to cool down and think and things through.
1: What this play does amazingly, and I'm gonna we'll circle back into the Holocron specifically because I think the Holocron also highlights this it foils so well especially between the two worlds but what the play itself does amazingly is it begins with henry the fourth saying how much better hotspur is it begins by glorifying hotspur and he's not the hot-headed in in just in act one scene one hotspur is not the hotspur he's not hot-headed he's not overly ambitious he is what a prince should be. He is going out and he is doing the king's work essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and then Henry the Fourth has that, you know, I wish some fairies would have exchanged our sons, uh, his in Northumberland's, that he had Hotspur and Northumberland had Hal, mm. which is funny because I don't know just to to bring in some Holocron stuff. Overall, I think uh, Jeremy Irons does extremely well as as Henry the Fourth. I actually really like the casting of him as Henry the mm-hmm. Fourth. My problem with him, which is my problem completely, is that uh, when you experience an actor in your very formative years in a role, there is no separation of that. So <laughs> Jeremy Irons is scar, I don't care what you tell me. So you know, he's given that speech I was, you know, I got the rough rough end of the deal, I got Hal and Northumberland got Harry. And you just every time I watch it, I'm just expecting you know, when it comes to sons, I'm in the shallow end of the gene pool. <laughs> uh <laughs> it's it's impossible to separate the two. <laughs> but overall I think he is he's he is a fantastic uh casting choice for that part.
0: For both parts of uh, Henry the I love his Henry the Fourth. Yeah. Um. Do you want to let's talk about his performance and, or do you want to go play by play?
1: No, I don't think we'll be have much success in in that. Uh, okay. I think we'll just go
0: character by character then a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. First thing, um, first thing to note though, as much as you you brought up that it begins with, is one of the interesting. Artistic choices that Air does is he begins part one with Hal and Falstaff in Eastcheap.
1: Yeah, he actually, and this goes against the the, the foils. He not only begins with Hal, but he blends. So he takes the first scene in the play is Henry in the court, and the second scene is Hal and and Falstaff in in Eastcheap, and Air completely blends the two cutting back and
0: forth between those two scenes yes just a masterful choice to make it cinematic i think and it's not as cinematic shots i will absolutely admit it's not as flashy in a good way that ghoul did with richard ii but it's still getting that okay this is cinema this isn't this isn't theater so let's chop a little bit of the scenes and splice them together a little bit. So we get the dichotomy and that foil, that situation of that one minute we're at the, we're at this. um, I liked what this one critic pointed out that there's basically two Englands on display of the the court life, that England, which is the drama England. And then you have Eastcheap England, which is comedic by nature, just because it's fun. It's got, it's, dingy, it's grungy, whereas it's clean and a little bit stuffy in the castles, and that's wonderful.
1: And one thing I that I noticed one... in my rewatch of of the Holocron, and I wish they kept it throughout the entire episode, they drop it at the end towards the end, is that if you're watching the first half essentially as it cutting as it cuts back between these two worlds, Eastcheap and and Hal and Falstaff's world, basically whenever Falstaff is around, there's music in the background and it's this very renaissancey what you would mm-hmm. call a renaissance music and then the court scenes are completely quiet yeah. sometimes there's this very low background music just to fill the space but the music choices in this episode are are fantastic mm-hmm. what uh what Google did with cinematography uh air, air did with sound uh, mm-hmm. and it, it is incredibly done to yes. to underscore just how drab and and he does it a bit with color as well, but not as much. But just how drab the court world is, and even when Percy is is off doing his thing, it's again completely silent. And every time Falstaff is on screen, it is just, just dance music essentially.
0: Yes. Well, that adds to the the mirthful feeling of it. The so Jeremy Irons I. I really appreciate in in Henry the Fourth Part One. It's not as honestly meaty of a. It is a meaty role, but it's. it's he has a couple. He has yeah. He has to play the straight two man. Two scenes and exactly. Playing the, straight, yeah. playing the straight man is almost never fun. Yeah. He gets some great lines though in Part One, and I think we. I don't know if I want to talk about this scene later, but the the two scenes. Of both Henry the ultimately for me at least, are the ce- interactions between father and son.
1: Really, I would, uh, and we'll get into when we get into part two. There's a lot of part two that's a retread of part one for the worse, but the two father-son scenes, part two is infinitely better. I mean, part one's alright <laughs> to me. That's not the scene
0: of the play, unlike part two where that is that well, is the scene. I, I... maybe not the scene of the play, but that scene is the scene to watch for act. Both of those scenes are the scenes for acting to watch of just what both actors bring to these roles and how it's a, it's just like, I think with the deposition scene, a, a powerhouse scene and just a, a demo reel for acting skills and what each actor can bring to it. Fair. Uh, because uh, so what I like though is henry the fourth um jeremy irons <clears throat> if we do look at the hollow crown and i do as the continuation of richard ii of where we see henry the fourth at this point he is he has molded into being the king and what i do love about henry the fourth about his henry the fourth is he really does care so much about england that's what his real concern is is like he he is disappointed in his son but But it's more that that it's just like, it's embarrassing, like, you are my heir. You are my heir? It's like, why? Why are you my heir?
1: I get that. I'm going to push back, but I don't know if he cares about England the same way that the Bolinburg of of Richard II does, and I I disagree with you that, obviously, they are the same characters, and Henry IV is, in a sense, a sequel, but I think there's too much of the same way i think there's a distinction between how and henry v of henry v i think that bonbrook and henry iv are two completely different characters well, and the comparisons that henry iv makes in henry iv between during that speech in, in act three where he's essentially comparing percy to him and and Hal to richard it's a it's a nice tie-in but they're so far apart in in their characters. And as far as what Henry IV is concerned about, it is seems to be, at least to me, more so his legacy than the country. And even, I mean, you can even make the same case for Bolingbroke in, in Henry IV. Did he care about England? He wasn't like John of Gaunt in his death <laughs> speech. Henry IV, he came back, he kind of, he just wanted his legacy. He wanted his lands. And then he kind of just fell into this king thing. And then you get... Henry the IV, of Henry the IV, and it's everything is just going to hell and he just needs to try and hold his kingdom together and he is just... You know, all he wants to do is go to the Holy Land and he just can't because people just won't stop well, okay, that,
0: that is in the play. I'm talking about the Hollow Crown.
1: But even, I don't see there's, much of a connection there's between the like Irons one and reference uh,
0: to. There's only one reference in part one uh about Henry the Fourth not being able to go to the Holy Land. Yeah, it's towards yes. There's, there there's n- none of that other than that. There's no at the end of Henry the Fourth's death of saying, huh, I guess I will die in Jerusalem after all. Huh. Was that that's, not in well, the Holocron? That's not in the Holocron at all. No.
1: Oh, I guess that was I see I watched the uh the Holocron and the BBC far too close together. I can't separate them in some cases. But that's fair. Um yeah i i mean my my part though was that I don't see the connection between Jeremy Irons and uh blanking on his name sorry Bob Brook from Holly okay. Burns, Richard the second
0: well well i see that the intention uh, to make it and in casting jeremy irons to to make it this age gap of time has made him more as comfortable as he can be in being king mm. but he is just continually plagued by by civil wars, and definitely in part part two of and the choice in edits to to make him say of what triggers him to say uneasy lies the head that wears the crown is that he is he is still caught up in in his concerns with civil civil wars, and he's sending out letters to some of his lords to speak and counsel with him and plot and that's what makes him think about wow i'm up too late i am sick i am old and i can't have peace i'm not having peace but why is he not having peace it's not because he really wants to stay in power and the the line later on that he that iron sells pretty well of just like that empty chair of like he doesn't look at the throne as this gift as in something to covet. And I think that also comes a little bit from Bolingbroke of just that I never really wanted this. And he, and he swears again and again, like, I didn't want this.
1: And that's fair. And it was um... basically
0: thrust upon me. And that's also yeah. getting into a little bit when we get into part one for the reasons for the rebellion. I always maintain, and I do love this about the differences between Richard II and Henry IV. In Richard II, It is just a long list of real grievances that are completely justifiable for why, like, for why it's just, no, Richard, you are a terrible king. You are an utterly awful king, and you deserve to be deposed. Whereas Henry IV, it's just all these petty things. Nothing but pettiness and just entitlement on the Percy's side of, we made you king, therefore... Suck up to us.
1: Yeah, and I do think that is a, a good through line if you want to look at Henry IV as a continuous character. Um Just the... And just go again, it's not that he cares about England, but he cares about order. And to him, Richard II was everything wrong with what order should be and what an ordered state should be. And then he has in both parts, he basically says to Henry you're just like Richard the you you're going to he's explicit in part two where he says you know and now the essentially Eastcheap cheap will will rule the country I wish I actually mm-hmm. remember the quote I don't um but in part one during oh, his scene with the, yeah there you go <laughs> um in part one he when he's doing the comparison he says the same thing you know we got rid of of Richard because he surrounded himself with terrible people and and just destroyed any semblance of order and and i guess that's if you want to look at richard this uh, henry the fourth as a unified character it is he, he's constantly fighting to preserve some kind of order
0: mm-hmm. absolutely so for me the the performance it unlike henry the richard the second he what Irons brings is this kind of commanding yes, he is a leader, yes, he is a king, but not in that same way that Richard is a king. He's a little more down to earth, he's more in charge of things, and he actually thinks things through in making his decisions, but he still makes bad decisions. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, but, but unlike Richard, there are still uh, they're bad decisions that at least make sense and they're not petty and stupid
1: they are i mean you can look at you know his you were talking about the, the pettiness of all the rebellions you, you can make an argument for so in, in act one scene three of, of part one he worcester is, is about to say something and before he even gets a chance he's like you're up to something get the hell out of my sight yeah. <laughs> and and that Sets Worcester off and then Percy joins in, and there's your entire rebellion right there. So you can make an argument, you know, in that one move of, of anger and just distrust did Henry IV cause the rebellion that happens throughout the next two plays.
0: Mm-hmm. True. Uh,
1: but I think that so, I mean whichever interpretation you're going with, Iron's why I think he's such a perfect casting is because he has he could play both of those really well he has the the gravitas to do the the authority figure but he also has the he could play angry very well and he does
0: oh, he yes. does rage extremely yes. well. well that's where the scar I guess I will concede I, I didn't think of scar but yes that's where the scar
1: again that's just, just me yeah. there's a few actors that I no no no. In a role no, that, that I cannot
0: I separate completely understand I completely understand. I don't know uh, somehow I was able to get through Lion King even though I was hearing Darth Vader be the hero. Oh uh, see I see I for me Lion King was before
1: Star Wars. <laughs> well, sort of. But yeah. yeah. The even, There's an audiobook version of Lolita narrated by Jeremy Irons which is <laughs> you yeah, if you're stuck on the scars it's a very surreal experience. Uh
0: the but what I understandably so I will say most of the acting praise went to Simon Russell Beale and to, to uh, Hiddleston. Sure. But I think in part two, that is really Jeremy Irons bringing, bringing it and playing against type in a way that's so wonderful to see. I'm just he he usually always plays like Henry the Fourth in Part One is quite frankly a Jeremy Irons character strong commanding got a bit of an anger temper also has like these nice inspirational qualities to him Part Two is seeing him that character diminished that character sick and dying yeah and just like no longer able to be that bastion of strength because he just and to get into what the air does brilliantly with part two. Part if part one is a play about ambitions and where you go in life with how, part two is really about Falstaff and Henry the Fourth. And it's about getting older. It's oh, about
1: absolutely
0: and and it's about how you deal with your age. Can you be like—and Falstaff does reform in part two, but we see how much Falstaff can reform, and Falstaff pretending to be a posh lord, and how hilariously, no, 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 (laughs) and just Falstaff being that guy— there There are plenty of people that I'm sure anyone can think of of just that person that pretends they're not their age, and you you've hit about it that, that thinks they can they they can still party with the the young people and be hip.
1: Yeah, he has this uh, – so at the beginning of, of part two when he's talking with the, the Chief Justice, yes. he essentially – he says, I'm not old, I'm, I'm one of the young ones. Yeah. And and that is – it's a brilliant setup. And I was reading – so I've, again, I've been in a very deep dive of these two plays, mm-hmm. and I'm f- reading far much into it, but one thing I like doing with Shakespeare's plays is – and this is completely arbitrary, I know, but it's, what does a character's first line tell us about this character? And what's mm. you know, what's Falstaff's first line? What time is it? And mm-hmm. as and so you look through both plays, but especially part two, Falstaff is in essentially a constant battle with time. Yes. And, and it's so fitting that, you know, he gets essentially trapped by, even though he's trying to con him, he gets trapped by Shallow, in part two, there's towards the end, Shallow is essentially Falstaff's trying to get out of there, and Shallow won't let him leave. He's <laughs> it's a complete misery situation, and and Shallow is his representation of of nostalgia, and he does nothing but you know wax poetic on the good old days. And there's a reason why um, Orson Welles brilliantly sets up his version of these plays by starting it his uh, the movie The Chimes at Midnight with that scene between. Uh-huh. Uh, Falstaff and Shallow. I need to see and it. It's, it's worth watching. Um, there's there's flaws in it, but it's worth watching. But it, it really does demonstrate that, as you said, and especially by the time we get to part two, it's everyone is just in a race against time. Henry's dying, Falstaff is having to accept that he's growing old, and Hal has is coming to that realization that he has to give up this life.
0: Um, well yes 100 percent well the i want to praise and comparing it to the way it's played out in the bbc version of that scene that you were just talking about i love that scene and uh i also love um, david bomber he played uh, who plays shallow he he was wonderful as cicero in rome so he's a i i love him he's a great british actor He is
1: definitely the better... I cannot stand the shallow in the BBC version. (laughs) (laughs) His very high-pitched voice. (laughs) Uh, No, the the holocard definitely got that relationship
0: better. Well, that scene where they're at the fireplace, and it's Falstaff actually, for once, acknowledging his age and thinking about it. And that shot, that wonderful shot where... Where kind of the the Jolly Clown dissipates. And he's just thinking about like, oh yeah, I'm old. I'm old and time has gone away. It's a really telling moment. Just like the choice of the way that they choose to read the the honor speech for Falstaff.
1: I didn't notice a huge difference anything particular about
0: that um uh, well if, if... well so one is yes. being voiceover is it is an interesting dramatic choice sort but of two he is that Beale reads it in an utterly serious tone i'm just like no like this honor thing is is garbage that speech can be played utterly for laughs
1: Oh, okay, see, so I've I'm just never like, seen that. I'm just like
0: clownish wisdom. I'm just like, I'm just like, this is like a coward's lexicon to run by. I'm like, oh, honor pricks me on. Uh, who feels it? One who's dead? No. Can it fix a wound? No. Uh, therefore, all oh, none of it. Yeah. Like something the cowardly lion would say.
1: But... <laughs> I if I'm sorry, we're going to be. Going in a bit of circles here, but I I don't so in part one. Holocard uses this voice ever a couple times. I think it yes. brilliantly works for that opening uh, Henry's Hal's uh, opening monologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can circle back to that, but I don't know if it did anything for. I honestly didn't notice it for the honor speech. Okay. Um, I wasn't okay. What I'll just to compare it to be was it Quayle in the uh, in the BBC version, mm-hmm. who ultimately I do prefer his version of Falstaff, Quayle's mm. over Beale's. But one thing that the BBC version did, and this isn't really on Quail, is every time Falstaff has a monologue, it's just this complete super close-up. And (laughs) and it it works once, but every time he has a monologue, they do it. And at some point, it's like, all right, learn a new trick. Um, But I do think that in that honor speech, it it does work very well in that time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that his... I don't know, Quail has... uh, like a bumbling sincerity to... Oops, know, sorry. Oh, it's okay. Uh, Quail has a bubbling sincerity to his Falstaff. I I couldn't really... I have a hard time pinning down Beale's Falstaff, and
0: maybe that's the point? Man, I'm just missing something? I think so. Is the, the thing about... Quail's Falstaff, I think, is ultimately... He's this kind of sweet guy that's like this... The, as you said, this bumbling sincerity to him, and so the nastier sides are there, but you just kind of laugh them off because he's so bad at it that you just can't really take it seriously. Fair. Quail probably but, does play the the end of
1: part two, or not Quail. Uh, Beale probably plays the end of part two better. Like Falstaff at his most jerk-ass.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that is Beal Beale's Falstaff is is wonderful in that he and i don't mean this in a mean way because the real guy is is one is a nice guy from all accounts but he plays he's played some nasty people and it's a little bit also the great makeup and beard that they got for him is that he's the one this utter slob of like there's no no one can ever mistake Falstaff of ever being like this kind of... And so when, in part two, it's kind of hilarious, where he's, oh, I'm in red clothes now. I'm in clean clothes. And I've tidied up my beard and tidied up my hair. So now I'm posh. Now I'm posh. Like, no, you're not. Yeah. Like, you're not. Like, I have a servant now. I was like, yeah? Like, he's just this kid that the prince, like, found off the streets and gave to you. And that Hal's paying. You're not paying. Like... And so there you you can tidy up Falstaff, but you can't make Falstaff be anything other than what he is. Which is great. And I like that dichotomy. I love that like in, in part two there's so much of be Beale like trying to pretend he and going for what we were talking about earlier, just pretending to be this young kid. This young hip person, only to immediately like complain like ooh, gout. Gout <sighs>
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yep. that is it. <laughs> it's like, and I do love just like from what you said from part two that, uh, of just him fighting with Lord Justice and like saying, like You're trying to tell me you're young. Yeah, I was born with white hair. <laughs> that, is, that is, I, I love their relationship. Plump, so I've always um, been plump. Yeah. Just like, and cool the, uh, thing.
1: and the Chief Justice, it's, uh, like you we were saying earlier, with Henry Fourth as the, the straight man, that is, it's a harder role to play because it's so understated. Um, and I have no idea who played it in part two. I'm looking up right now. But he did it very well. And just the ability Jeffrey to... Palmer. to uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Palmer. Ah, uh, there you go. The ability to to play off Falstaff like that in, in all the scenes he's in. Uh,
0: They're in together. Well, I mean, the hard thing is that, and this goes to just about everyone... Not just with um Hal, but with with some of these characters that interact with Falstaff, and Falstaff himself is one moment and we haven't touched on this already, but I'll touch on it now. Henry the Fourth, part one, really is, I feel, one of the best exemplums of what Shakespeare's talent is. And I do mean that utterly sincerely, of that you have essentially two plays. And both are really good plays and together make something amazing of that. You have this real serious historical drama with all the trappings of a tragedy. And Hotspur does go through all of, the, all of the foibles of a tragic character in it. And on the other side, you have this really great broad comedy with Falstaff. And in between the two that links the two together is Hal. This wonderful yeah. character. And so, one moment you can have Hal be really funny, just uh, drunkenly clowning around with Falstaff and Eastcheap, only to then be grounded and serious and actually have to pull it all together when he's in front of the king and later when he's fighting Hotspur. Is oh, actually, no, 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 he isn't a, a clown. Like, this guy actually is there is something to him there's more to him than meets the eye
1: well you were saying that you know it's it's shakespeare pulling it off brilliantly um the the two worlds and it is and and it's something he does a lot if you so there's not to get too literary nerdy here but there's the (laughs) the, the concept of the green space this was a um the Northrop Fry thing, essentially a character goes from the ordinary world to a, a green space. And he is this kind of, I, you know, idyllic situation. So you look at the, the obvious Shakespeare examples, Midsummer Night Dream, mm-hmm. they go from Athens into this literal green spaces forest, and they're literally transformed and all that happens. Uh, same thing with, as you like it, Mm-hmm. But you also have the the subtler versions of the green space, and um, one example of that is is actually Merchant of Venice, and I only bring that up because it was written in pretty much eh, maybe just before Henry the Fourth Part One, um, mm-hmm. and it's that same idea of you have this this drab world of Venice versus the carefree, at least on the surface, world of, of Belmont. And so here in, in Henry IV Fourth Part One, he's playing off that same idea he had done in those two plays, Midsummer and, and Merchant, but he is taking it to it's it's the first time that it's not some fantasy land like in Midsummer, and it's not even this made-up place like Belmont. This is London. This is, you mm-hmm. know, where you, the audience, are living. This is your yes. world. Yeah. And that was the, the first time that Shakespeare did. Because it's completely anachronistic, right? It's um, yes. yeah, it's it's set well, in I mean, whatever he's, year. He's, he's, right,
0: he's reflecting what he his actual experience because yeah. Shakespeare did live in both worlds of that. He did perform before the Queen of England and later the King of of England and Scotland, and at the same time would then uh, play to the drunken Eastcheap kind of people. Exactly. So he knew both of these types of people he has, very well and people to he-
1: capture it so well and that's why the audience resonated and and we never really touched on i don't know what you which theory you buy into with with part two and the merry wives of windsor but the kind of the popular theory are, is the popular theory is that those two plays were written because there was such a demand because henry the fourth part one was the best-selling quarto ever it was shakespeare's best-selling it it hit it was the record-selling book essentially Mm -hmm. um it set a new standard for record-selling books that he was compelled to for money's sake churn out sequels Mm -hmm. and with part two it amplifies like part one is a fairly even split between court and an east sheep life and you Mm -hmm. know part two amplifies that you know you barely see the court except for at the end yeah falstaff is the centerpiece of part two until the yes. end and you have so much more of that the commoner life you have the the brawl you know mistress quickly has a bigger part you have uh, doll
0: doll too um, she is brought in yeah
1: shallow and that whole stupid routine which
0: derails the play with moldy wart and all of those guys okay i will defend at least with the hollow crown <laughs> They made that scene hilarious. They,
1: they and, did well with it. It's, it's a hard scene to do
0: because the Hollow Crown, it, it, like you don't think unless you watch the Henry the Fourth parts, it's not super funny because the yeah. Henry ad, except for the Henry the Fourth plays, is not really that funny. No. But and that's part of the the credit to Russell Beale and all the cast. Um, also give a quick wonderful shout out to the lovely, uh, let me get her name right, uh, Julie julie walters is that is she her? quickly uh yeah the and she
1: was she was great in in both hers and yeah. julie parts. walters
0: aka everyone knows her as mrs weasley oh of course yeah yes that's right <laughs> and she's just wonderful wonderful as mistress quickly as is the actress playing uh i got it here thank you imdb maxine peak as doll cheersheet. all the actors are, are are wonderfully playing the right amount of like broad but never broad to where the dramatic moments feel out of place. Yeah, I I do agree with that. Um and so I I love and yes it is shallow broad comedy but it is, but the way they play it is so funny. I'm just like, "Oh, Moldy, your name is Moldy" and like them having a laugh and then just later on bard off getting bribed. That I, I do
1: love the it That scene has an amazing payoff. It's just but again, this speaks to some of the flaws of Part 2 of... Because one of the other theories of Part 2 is that
0: oh, so, he... Uh, sorry, go on. So, I may... Your your theory right there, I think that's... I think it's more of a... I think yes to all of the above to most questions for why was there a Part 2. The other one I think 100% is true is not only was everyone wanted more false, stuff, more false, stuff, it's also... There was a big name fan that really loved Falstaff, and she was the Queen of England. I don't know about that. I
1: mean, I've heard I'm that. Pretty, I, I've heard, yeah.
0: I believe that completely. i have just that 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 she just outright asked William Shakespeare at one point, "What happened to Sir John?"
1: Well, that's that's the story behind Mary, Wives of Windsor. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if I buy into it, um, and we're not going to touch that play at least right now. But although just to say that that was so. Part two, Henry the Fourth, Part two, ham, not hems up, but really highlights more that the common world over the the, uh, mm-hmm. the court world, and that's Marowice, why *Mary of Windsor* though was, yeah, *Mary of Windsor* was the only play that Shakespeare wrote that was explicitly contemporary, um, and to me that just highlights that that's what the people wanted, and he was just giving the people what they wanted, yep. the, the, they wanted themselves Windsor*
0: to be a, a, <laughs> to be contemporary, and people will be angry by me making this comparison but it's the honest truth it is the minions of shakespeare's work yeah yeah it's it's a problem well it's, <laughs> no, it's 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 fan service it's giving the fans what they want It's like all right you want more all right i'll give you more full stuff yeah. i thought i already killed him but fine Which is,
1: <laughs> well no it's supposed to take place between parts one and two isn't it yeah. uh anyway but it's why i don't buy into that that was a request of queen elizabeth um but I, sorry, just see to hear back what uh what part two does, so part one is this great balance of mm-hmm. of the comedy and the the drama, the court and the east shape, and we keep flashing back and forth between them, and you have you know court scene e sheep percy scene court scene, and it goes like that for a lot of it until the end mm-hmm. part two tries to up the ante of that and it tries to make the dramatic more dramatic and make the comedic more comedic
0: and for me that's where it suffers a bit just because it doesn't have that balance i think the play the actual play that they're adapting i would more i am more inclined to agree with you on that on that front henry the fourth part part two is pretty much universally regarded as the weaker, weakest of the cycle I think rightfully so because it's too much of a good thing. If it, too much Falstaff, yes, you can have too much Falstaff.
1: Oh yeah.
0: And especially Falstaff going from not only like a, an important character to basically the main character is a huge misstep. Yes. Uh, I understand why, and some of the the Falstaff stuff works, but. A lot of it is also just like, it gets borderline tedious.
1: I agree. So there there are those great so, moments with him and the Chief Justice, and and then him and Shallow, and then like the whole theme of, of him fighting against his is perfect. But just that, the fact that they removed Hal from the play until the end. He's, a, he's in one scene, he and Falstaff only have one scene together, and they're not really together. Um, and then he has, in total, two scenes before... He essentially takes the crown in that's Act Four, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. it I don't know, I think that and this is I am critiquing Shakespeare here, I guess not the Hall of Crown. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that the fact that the through line of how from Henry the Fourth, part one, to Henry the is is very much stunted with the exception of those two scenes at the end of part two. Uh, is is a bit odd. Uh but that being said, I think the Holocron recognized that and did try to make those corrections, which is why the major so, one of the major shifts, the changes that Aaron made in, in part two was he took part of a scene with uh Henry the Fourth and, and his courtiers and John of Lancaster, and he moved it towards the beginning of the of the mm-hmm. the episode here, and it's the part of the scene where it's essentially the retread of Henry the Fourth complaining about how. Um
0: but I what I love about that, and I think what Air has done is made it a much more realistic uh for for truly changing yourself. And you you're critical of, of Hiddleston as as Hal. I really, really admire and love what he's doing with Hal because you can see that Hal is is not as much of an affect as he tells himself it is. And how much he is just sowing his wild oats, having a good time. And that wonderful scene, that masterpiece of a scene, of him play-acting with Falstaff, and that close-up of that face of Hiddleston, as he slowly, it dawns on him that, like, oh, crap, I actually do like you guys, but I am going to abandon you. Yeah, I mean... and that's a great sign of the the conflict within him of that I want to be just this fun loving guy, but I know I'm not always gonna be this fun loving guy. And what I love about the scene of him and his father. And one of the things that I really love about the Henry the Fourth plays is that the, these are stories about fathers and sons. Like and they're one of the only plays that's really about that because Shakespeare um, ended up focusing on the father daughter dynamic for personal reasons. <laughs> what, yeah, um, so and I love what the way that they interpret that. Of, um, another podcast we I talked about this but what do you make of the the blocking decision to have it so that Henry the 4th in both times where he's dr- dressing down Hal it's not it's not completely isolated it's with other people around first with his brothers and then later on with the court
1: I love that I think that and especially here you, know, you have in that first scene in um in the scene between them in, in part 1 you know henry the fourth is like leave us i gotta talk to my son they don't they're just hanging around (laughs) watching this happen yeah Um, and and that goes and it's a perfect because it happens right after that scene where um you know hal is pretending to be henry the fourth and Mm -hmm. that realization and so that scene like that that moment in in story exists because Falstaff is basically saying you have to confront your father let's practice what you're gonna say and is completely set up as a piece of theater and everyone's Mm -hmm. just laughing and there's a huge audience and then for him to actually go to his father and and have an audience again but be but you know not have nearly the courage that Falstaff playing Hal had but basically begging just immediately begging for forgiveness and then trying for the Hail Mary of I'm gonna fight Percy I'm gonna be Percy that's that's his winning strategy there like you 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 will not you'll never accept Hal, so I'm gonna win you over by being Percy.
0: Well, because at first end um, when, when he's like, "I shall hereafter my thrice gracious lord be myself," that gets a slap from him. Yeah,
1: and I love that moment. That is great in
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, to play comparison game, like the BBC version, the way that. And I love John Finch's take on Henry the Fourth, but he takes it as much more like Henry the Fourth is almost the Fisher King, where he, he is sick and the realm is sick as well. And and he's very theatrical in his Henry the Fourth. Yeah. Uh, whereas the kind of more grounded and like I said, just kind of like fatherly authority figure, just just it's wonderful of just being that straight man, just being like I cannot know... I. Like don't try to charm me. No, that's not gonna work with me. No. But I think it it works for that version of the story because the
1: and this is to get back to Hiddleston. Um the version of uh, of Hal in the BBC one is he's more um I don't know if effeminate's the right word, but but he's more boyish, right? And, yes. and that's the thing about Hiddleston, and this is maybe just my interpretation, pal, and, and nothing to do with hiddleston's performance but to me hiddleston seems to for lack of a better word, grown up at the beginning he he starts to play he is he's very in a sense he's very mature um and you know the only time that you really see him lapse into that immaturity is when he's drunk during the the Francis scene um uh. and throughout that entire scene but beyond mm-hmm. that he's he's very
0: restrained i guess um versus... i'll disagree because of what i said for, for like his behavior gets a slap from his father yeah and, but and, that's not his and like though. when he's like clowning around with falstaff even in the introduction scene at first he's just he's being glib and and just like having a ball of just like being witty and he adores robbing falstaff and then like listening to falstaff lie his way so much and touching back earlier what we talked about for for I think what, what Simon Russell Beale's Falstaff unlike Anthony Quayles he is much more of a parasite and a grifter yes but, and so and the difference is you don't is both you're much more aware of it but the and this is good acting is even though he is this obvious grifter. He is this obvious parasite. And he's this obvious kind of sad sack. For whatever reason, you actually somewhat like him. And and, I mean, that's and his... how, somewhat genuinely. It's not just like, ha, you're funny. It's like, oh, crap. I actually do genuinely like you on, on this kind of like friendship level. But then right. time and time again, Falstaff shows his true colors and just. Points where it's like no, but no. As fun as you are, no, you are a jerk. Well, a the way that they like... that they play him bringing in Hotspur's body, it's this. It's much more this like I feel much more seedy and just like really gross moment that shows like oh yeah, oh you are a you are not a good person at all. Well, it's this
1: escalation, right? And then, I mean, Hal and, and points even play on it that what we come to quickly expect from Falstaff is he is able to talk himself out of absolutely everything. So you have, you know, the the in that scene where yeah you know they're trying to catch him in a lie. You know, the he, Falstaff <laughs> is talking about manning and Kendall Green, and then he says yeah. it was too dark and couldn't even see my my hands. And then Henry is, Hal's like, ha, how can you? Explain this. How can you see? And those were my men To a hundred. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They they increase the men, but then you know Falstaff is like, I'm not gonna. I don't owe you any explanation. But then when he finally gets caught on the lie, when when Hal re- reveals the whole plot, his brilliant explanation is, I knew it was you the whole time. But who am I to kill the heir apparent? I'm not gonna do that. And and so the joke of of Falstaff that. You know Hal and Poins expect, and then that the audience comes to expect is that he is the man who could talk himself out of everything. So he kills Percy, or you know Hal kills Percy. Falstaff takes his knife and, and you know cuts Percy a little bit, and he basically says, "Put me to death if I'm lying that this small cut here is not is not delivered by me." And he's like, "Yeah, oh, he's absolutely right. He's telling the truth. He did cut Percy there," and then. You know, part two comes along, and all of the playfulness of his lies completely subside and it's just like there's there's no more playfulness to it, and and you know you have the so there's the one scene between him and Hal until the final scene is mm-hmm. Hal or Falstaff is talking to Dolterchie and just completely crapping on on Hal and and points, yeah. and Hal well, catches him out, and there's no joking explanation and there's no reconciliation yeah. oh. there that's that's oh. it yeah
0: well that's just a firm reminder although i will say also watching it at this time i also appreciate just how both wonderfully sad that's another moment where falstaff does acknowledge his age when he they make it clear in this one in this r-rated interpretation he can't get it up and he's just sad and he's like just saying oh i'm old and Doll's just trying to kind of play it off and laugh it off, It's like I don't care, I like you more than any young guy. Yeah, and that's sweet. And so that's actually, even though yes, he's talking utter like he's revealing what he really feels about about Hal and Poins, it's also at the same time, Poins and and Hal are are snooping in on him trying to sleep with a woman. So, yeah, the wrong goes both ways, I suppose. But I'm
1: not even saying who is right and who's wrong. I'm just saying that is the that shows the complete deterioration, deterioration of their relationship. Mm -hmm. And you can even go back further and say that the point, you know, the explicit point of the end of their their relationship is I know you're not old man at the end of part two. Oh, yes. But you can one interpretation I like is that that moment after Yes. False staff claims that he killed Percy, and and Hal basically just says, "If it'll make you happy, I'll go along with your lie." To me, that was that was it. That's that's the last moment of of levity that those two have. And even in that moment, Hal is just so much focused more on on the battle because it goes from, yes. "I'll I'll support your lie." All right, brother, let's go see who's dead, right? Yeah. And it's just that is the moment you realize that these two are done. Because then the next time you see Hal, he's not with Falstaff, he's with Poins. and it's kind of a repeat of the opening scene from Part One, but you've re- now replaced Falstaff with Poins as the new, you know, the new best friend essentially. Yeah. You know, they were close in Part
0: One, but yeah. Now it's but just already. Happy. You can see in Part Two of that scene the way that they interact though it's not a repeat because the Hal facade is is giving way for the for the real or not even giving away because I don't think, I think there is a change of character. He is becoming a different person and he's realizing, okay, fun days are over. I got to man up and be You're responsible. Right. Sorry, but I repeat so, that, so that, the, the the entire structure. The entire conversation yeah. they're having when he does actually be honest with, with points and points is, he's better than false Cause he actually can acknowledge that like, Oh, you're being serious okay and i'm not gonna be super glib but he says like what would i say if i actually told you i i would i feel really sad that my dad's sick he was like i wouldn't believe you like i know that's why i won't say it and and that's actually in a way that's 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 points failing henry as well because that's him trying to reach out and say like hey i'm not just a guy to drink around with i actually have feelings and i care about my father and it is really concerning to me just as a human being that my father's sick and just points is like yeah really hmm. <laughs> and then they just kind of brush it off but i think that's important too yeah I mean it um, is a shame we never do find out what happens to points <laughs> is, that is true i was I was trying to remember if he's in Henry v um but yeah no, he uh Shakespeare fan fiction usually does say like he just ended up marrying some someone but he and he was like sort of in Henry's court he wasn't he didn't get the I know you're not old man treatment no Uh and there's no reason cuz he is technically like he is actually like noble ish but... I'm trying to find that scene cuz it's an interesting scene
1: uh the one between uh Hal and and in, in part 2 mm-hmm. um because not only you brought up a great point about how Hal's trying to be honest but he also really starts to explicitly you know show how show his contempt for these people that he's essentially been hanging out with this whole yeah. time, and mm-hmm. he's just like, you know what? I just hate poor people. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> say it that explicitly, but that's that's kind of the the bit behind part of that scene. Um, you know, when they're talking about Falstaff said that how is going to marry Poirot's sister, and it's like he's just showing how much he's like, I'm done with this world, and it's it's essentially he's going back to the I know you all monologue but this time he actually means it unlike that unfortunately placed monologue <laughs> which just as a, a tangent because why not praise to to air here that is that's is wonderfully filmed um mm-hmm. so he delivers this monologue he's he's parting it up with with Falstaff and coins and they're playing this robbery he's then alone sorry, sorry. Uh, and he goes into this monologue of you know I know you all and you yeah. know for a moment, I'll, I'll permit your humors, but this is all just an act. And one day, I will break through the clouds. And when I deliver the promise, you know, pay the debts I never promised, how much better will I be? And the way the Holocron does it is he's it's complete voiceover, which really works. And he's just walking you. The camera is his perspective. It's a first-person perspective. And he's just looking at all these people who adore him. Mm. And he's expressing how much he hates them all, and, and how much he is not like them, and how much better he is than all these people. Uh, and so I thought that was wonderfully shot.
0: Mm. Um, but the way he reads it, it's more resigned. It's more like, eh, them's the breaks. I guess,
1: and that's, I can go back to it little It's a very, the the actual reading of the monologue is kind of nothingness to me. It's It's well done, and I'm not trying to... Yeah trap on Hiddleston as an actor because he's a great actor Um, but I didn't really get anything from his reading of the monologue it really comes out through the the cinematography in that moment Uh,
0: to me it's both of those it's the two voiceover soliloquies are what's really in their hearts and it's them being honest with themselves as much as they can be it's falstaff being honest, saying, like, I don't believe at all in this honor so, Like honor is garbage. Like and so I will not be honorable. Because what does it gain by being honorable? And how it's this kind of resigned ah, I'm going to abandon you and I'm just going I'm just using you people. Yeah. But but at the same time he says it in a way that we're I'm not sure even he believes it. And, that's, and it's it's a hard of monologue to read. The of reason Hal's why. Performance, or Hiddleston's performance, rather. It's a hard monologue to do. And, oh, and yeah. the
1: reason is because it is so... It's it's impossible to know what to make of it, you know, if you're trying to play Hal in your own performance. I think that the voiceover was perfect because it allows... and. And his reading, while flat, it was also more, again, even though I think Hylson was too mature to begin with, it's far more mature than the rest of his performance. Right? And so you get at least, you can understand, you know, one interpretation is. Air is trying to say, this is him reflecting, you know, it's, this is a future how looking back at this time and this is what he's saying, which is, is a great way to interpret the moment because if you do it as how in the moment, He's saying, "I am, I am not you. I am better than you. And one day I'll throw off my my Shit. facade. Time now to get drunk and make fun of poor people and rob people. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like there's, there's, it's impossible to square There's two versions of Hal in that moment if you read the speech in the
0: moment. Yeah. So coming uh to part two what you said earlier and i agree absolutely for part two the the quality of part two and yet the irony of part two is that it is the more quoted play
1: it's, it has obviously it has heavy lives to head
0: um it's one one of the misquoted but is quoted of uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. That's,
1: sorry, that's no, that's
0: that was just me screwing up. Sorry. <laughs> no, a, lot of, a lot of people say it that way.
1: You're right. Most people.
0: Just uh, like people say I, I was shared of myself not, That's not yeah. what we said,
1: I know. Now I'm really mad at myself. Ugh. you cut that, cut that from the edit that out. <laughs> no. Um, but yes, it has that. I I don't know. and
0: and also just the I know you're not old man. That is always remembered. No one forgets that scene, sure. and I think the final interaction between Hal and Henry is so. In mild defense of Shakespeare, and yes, he had to appease fans by giving more Falstaff, but part of the problem is is that he he depicted all of the exciting part of Henry the Fourth's reign in Henry the Fourth Part One because. And it's not done in a way that's fun and exciting like Richard II of like of subverting expectations of like of all this build-up to, ooh, there's going to be another fight. And Northumberland is coming back, and he's teaming up with Scroop, and they're going to have another fight again. And it's John of Lancaster's time to shine. And, nah, just like these real sh- tricks of a, oh, um, I'll, I swear I'll address your concerns. Now, put away your army. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now I'm arresting you. What you said you? Do- yeah, I <laughs> said I would address your concerns. I didn't say. Like you're still traitors. I'm still gonna kill you. I I did love
1: that moment, but I
0: but yeah, it's. It's hard to
1: he you he, he gave away all the good stuff in in part one as far as history goes.
0: I absolutely agree. And well, I mean he he didn't, for, he didn't yeah. want to do, depict his actual. There is like in real history a lot he could have worked with of if he wanted to do more with Glendower. because Glendower never went away really. True. Sure. He was just always a thorn in Henry the Fourth side until he finally just died one day mysteriously. That. That's something amazing about the real Glendower. The real Glendower was not this wannabe wizard that Shakespeare pre- depicts in that. It was this- I never
1: noticed until going back to you, both Richard II and Henry IV, just how much he craps on the Welsh. Like, you know that he does, <laughs> he craps on the French all the time, but just every time the Welsh come up as their wizards and prophecies, <laughs> it's just that's all the Welsh is to, you know, Renaissance English people. It's so funny. Yeah, and then but, even the Scottish, you know, Douglas falls down a hill and is presumed dead. It's just everyone gets a bit of the the English brush, I
0: guess. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, well, the only one he well, no, he, he portrayed the Scots nobly in Macbeth, but. Well, that's because there was a Scottish king. Now you have to. Yeah. Pre-pre James,
1: it was. Yeah. Pre James, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like in uh, Merchant of Venice, he also craps on Scots and uh, Comedy of Errors, actually a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So to to go back to what you were saying though, yeah, part two has the unfortunate it's there's a lot of time to fill before you get to the end because in in theory he could have written that ending. He could have taken you know, Acts 4 and 5 of Part stage, 2 and slapped stage, it onto Part stage 1. Stage
0: adaptations kind of do that. I've yeah, seen. and
1: that's oh. what uh, that's what Orson Welles did in The Chimes of Midnight. He he combined both parts and cut out quite a bit of the filler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a way to do it. Now, there are plenty of reasons. It, it's impossible to say, did Shakespeare intend to write that ending, the the final bit between Henry and Hal and then ha- Hal and Falstaff? Was that always conceived while writing Part 1, or was that part of a new idea when he realized that he needed to do a sequel Mm -hmm. but it's and it is it's unfortunate that it's probably if you take the two parts i love that ending so much of part two it might be my favorite part out of the entire henry the fourth two parter and it just you have to wade through a lot of filler some good (laughs) but it's a lot of filler before you get to that that brilliant um Henry and Hal scene, and then the I know you're not old man, faultier prayers, mm. and and that is what's remembered of part
0: two, right? You it's have a really good ending, and it's just, it's I an ending I understand, ending. and yeah, well, and again, I I credit air of like he made it into a much more interesting play by making it just focus on this is a play about being old. Yes, but, he brought uh, up
1: the he brought up the drama far more than let's say the BBC version. Oh yeah, and even. Actually, even though it's like, zangy
0: version was, I, I will defend, is like... And even though we're critical, I will say right now, part, part two is still a fine Shakespeare play.
1: Yeah, it's oh no, it's,
0: need, it's nowhere near, near the bottom of it. You need part that. one to yeah. really appreciate it. Yes. And it's still... And when you compare it to part one, it's like... It's just a, a case study of a bad sequel, honestly. Right, like it, it falls for all the the bad. We're being critical of Shakespeare more than we are of, <laughs> of Air. I'm
1: yeah, more of that because I think that Air did a great job with Part Two. I prefer I prefer Part One, obviously, for, because of the plays themselves. But I think Air, the same way that um, Gould had to do with Richard II, that it was this kind of blank canvas that he was able to bring a lot to because there are so few expectations on Part Two because nobody cares about Part Two except for the ending. Air was able to do a lot more with it. And I said this during Richard II that for all that is great about part one, and Air does make a few good choices, but it is played fairly straight as far as as an adaptation goes, um, Mm. minus some of the really good scene swaps and and cuts that he makes. Whereas part two, you have scenes like that uh, when, when Mistress quickly is trying to have Falstaff arrested in the streets, air just brings out the absolute chaos by flooding the scene with people and and, and the music and the chaos in that scene is is fantastic. Um, And then again, it's really his use of extras. You have the scene with Henry being called out in front or Hal being called out in front of the whole court and then Hal calling out Falstaff in front of the whole court again. Um, These, the way he uses crowds and the way he he moves around people in in part two, uh, I think makes Air's version a lot more enjoyable than more straightforward adaptations of the play.
0: I agree. I I'm in awe of finding that theme and through line to make part two into a much more worthy follow up to part one than i think that the content of the actual play is
1: it is and you do have to look at it through more of that thematic
0: because yes it's the the drama of the play
1: is it's about growing old and i can't again i read too many um criticisms i can't remember who is who now but essentially uh, someone pointed out that you know part two is shakespeare with his eye to the tragedies because mm-hmm. by the time you know he was writing um Henry IV plays, he had written Titus and Romeo and Juliet, which mm. technically tragedies, but not what you think of when you think of Shakespeare's tragedies. The high uh, tragedies. The mm. high tragedies and even the tragic tragedies because Romeo and Juliet is you know, half comedy anyway, and, and Titus is whatever it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, this was the first, I guess the more introspective tragedy is what I'm going to call it because neither Titus nor Romeo and Juliet had much introspectiveness, introspection to it. But part two of, of Henry the Fourth was really the first time that you see Shakespeare having characters look inward and, and confronting their own mortality and, and really confronting the essentially the futility of life and he really moves towards that nihilism that gets fully realized in King Lear and, and Othello and plays like that. Mm. And Macbeth.
0: And Macbeth, obviously with a yeah. tomorrow speech. But we, and boy, oh Boy, so we praised Richard II for, for the deposition scene being one of the greatest. And I say that Hal and Henry's final scene is right there. And w- that's also what I mean by powerhouse acting. And before, earlier with Hiddleston, with the slow, wonderful choice of music also, but him... Just that close up of slowly trying to hold it in as he begins to cry, just the, the thought that his father is dead, and then the horror to know that, oh, my father wasn't dead, and he's alive, and he's extremely angry,
1: yeah, and again, that's one of those moments and like this is and, makes hal a very difficult character to play because in that moment, you know when he takes the crown and then he learns his father is still alive is he upset is he happy what is what is he really feeling in that moment and it's completely mm-hmm. up to
0: interpretation yes because well because we know as audiences what hal says isn't true isn't factually true but the sentiment behind it can be 100 percent true in that he says like he he didn't curse the crown and say like, You killed my father, damn you He didn't say that at all. Yeah. But we do know that he's especially the way Hiddleston wonderfully plays it, he was heartbroken that his father is dead. And he and the way he reads, my 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 duty from you is this crown, which no one will take. He doesn't say that at all with joy. He's just like, okay, I guess it's mine. True. Um... And, and, and again, that that him sitting on the crown, sadly and beginning to weep, and then happily giving it back to his his father after he's given him the ma- most magnificent dressing down. But it's also Henry, and it's a great s- showcase of jeremy irons talent of just him also having this emotional collapse and what i say earlier and why i love he's doing his logan in a way of just like that this once strong great warrior king is now this frail old man yeah that's such a heartbreak to him was like couldn't you have just waited five minutes okay fine dig my grave And no one will be sad that I'm gone. Congratulations. And all you people, do not blame me. Do not blame me. It's all on him. That is...
1: uh, It is a fantastic scene. I would have put it on par with uh, the the deposition scene, but (laughs) I do see what you're saying. Um, It's...
0: Just the heart. Yeah, so Jeremy Irons
1: captures it, and yeah, it is that... I mean, it's that realization, right? Like it's essentially henry the Fourth coming full full circle because he from his perspective in the moment he has just been deposed in this case by his son and it's like everything that i have done everything that i worked for within 5 minutes it's completely forgotten and nobody nobody cares nobody's legacy lasts and that's it we just we're alive until we're alive and we leave behind absolutely nothing and there goes me there goes england and there goes everything and then i mean to me it's a bit of a quick turn but in the same way that it is in in part one henry apologizes there's that brief makeup and then he dies Mm
0: -hmm. well that's where the actor that's where it's on the, the henry the hal actor to bring it all Yes, and you for got all the... to make the audience weep with that speech. Yes, and for all the crap
1: I give Hiddleston in part
0: one, I think that he does that moment extremely well. And and I want to also say though, um, uh, well, so I just love the pathos of that scene. So that's why I think it's on on a level with the deposition scene of just that what. what it brings what that raw intense pathos Uh, just any father-son relationship it's just like wow just amazing and then okay but then the little preview for henry the fifth is one of the things i love about these plays is it brings this wonderful little hint of cynicism throughout it of that how much of of everything of how How's Ruffian days are just this cynical PR calculation on his part. And Henry the Fourth's final advice is so often forgot, but it's, it's the work. most like it's the most blunt, cynical advice ever. Of just like, okay, son, I'm a usurper. The only way they're gonna forget that I'm a usurper. Is if you go to war with someone else.
1: Well, it's it's that. It's also the idea of the the only way you can stop England from fighting with England is go to war with someone else, right? It's you need you need the only way you will be successful and learn from my failures is you need a common enemy. I didn't have a common enemy, therefore I was the enemy. Give that people a common enemy that's not English or whale Welsh or Scottish, and, and they will rally behind you. Mm. And it is – it's probably a good – I mean it's a, it's a good political statement today, and it probably was just as good as political statement in 1596-97 uh, when it was written. It's
0: also, but it's also incredibly monstrous at the same time, Alex. Yeah, I know. Not def- <laughs> he says not ethically like, – it. <laughs> Because it just says like, oh, wow, we're going to go to war just so you can keep your job? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And and I'm I'm gonna have to read before if we do do Henry V, Fifth I'm gonna to have to read a bit up on on the history because I'm I'm very bad with that moment of the Hundred Years' War and
0: historically oh, not Shakespeare well, what
1: what prompted
0: it. Um, okay, well, well, I, I on that note, as we're winding down, uh, I'm I always love to say this. It's a an amazing like it's astonishing of just truth is is much more crazy than fiction the, the final scene with Hal and Henry did happen in real life okay that actually happened yeah, um, that makes sense. dad you okay okay I'm taking the crown hey give me back my crown oh what sorry dad dad I swear I swear I do not want it I gladly give it back to you and I never want it oh, okay son we're good <laughs> go to France yeah. Oh, no, th- that part, yeah. Actually, <laughs> Henry the IV's last words were not like this Jerusalem prophecy. They're actually way funnier in a, in a dark way. Mm-hmm. Of just as he was dying, his confessors asked him, Do you repent usurping a, 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 an anointed king? It, his response was, My sons won't let me.
1: <laughs> that is good.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, all I'll say for now, preview if we come back for the Henry V is no yeah like Henry the 4th did want to go to war with Jerusalem but but Henry the 5th was was like from day 1 like okay we're going to France we're going to France there was no like attempt at all in the play for like excuse it was like no day 1 I want to go to France I totally want to go back to France I'm kind of annoyed we haven't been back to France <laughs> I'm annoyed that we lost all of Edward III's territories, so I'm totally going to go to war with France. As we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll
1: be, uh, if we're just closing off, um, of course, so the the female characters of, of the Henry IV plays really get short shrift. on yes. Henry V. Um, quickly is great, but I do want to also give a, a shout-out to Name that I'm just picking up. Uh, Michelle Dockery as as Kate Percy, yes. even though completely underused character, I think that she does. She was also extremely well cast.
0: Uh, in he, that role. Yeah, she brought a lot to uh, that, role that role that is often a, a cliche character, but one. Yeah. It's the brilliance of Shakespeare, and it's also the brilliance of her performance. I'm just like, what are you doing? Please tell me what you're doing.
1: But more than that, she she stands up to, or not stands up, but she she matches Percy in that moment, in that, well, both their scenes together. Mm -hmm. Uh, She really shows, and I think it comes out very realistically in her performance, that this is someone who could be married to Percy. Uh, And then, unfortunately, in part two, she is completely reduced to the crying widow, along with Lady Northumberland. It's like, now there's two of them. But
0: they don't give her... (laughs) They they cut out her monologue where she just decries the fact that she's a widow. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, still
1: a good performance.
0: We didn't touch on the Hotspur in Northumberland. I mean, the fun trivia fact is that they were played by father and son in that's, real life. That is true. That's cool. Um, what did you think of, you, of this Hotspur? I
1: prefer the BBC version in and not even because the actor i thought the actor uh will yeah it is will nope sorry no john (laughs) losing names uh i thought the actor was great and probably better in in the hologram than in the bbc but i do like that the bbc captured hotspur better simply because they cut less and i think part of hotspur is that he just does not shut up. <laughs> and, and this Hotspur was a bit, he he captured the anger, The uh, Armstrong captured the anger extremely well, but not the, the verbosity and the ceaselessness that is Hotspur. And, and the BBC, both with his, he's an extremely quick talker. Mm. Uh, he, he does that full opening monologue in Act 1, C3, and they don't cut a word, and he does it super quick, as opposed to Armstrong's, which gets cut, for good reasons. I'm not arguing against that, but I think that when it comes to, to Percy, you need both the anger and just the, what this kid just shut up already. And yes. uh, the BBC captures that really well. Absolutely.
0: Um, I loved Armstrong's Hotspur. It, it, I mean, full disclosure it was my first introduction to Hotspur, but what I do love about him is he brings this level of charisma where I, I do understand like, I would follow you to war, but I also see that where that is a word that's often infamous, but I will say it toxic masculinity of that. He just has so much of, he buys his own hype that he's blinds himself to, to like all the signs that, uh, you're short on men. You sure you want to do this? Yeah. And what's so great about that
1: is that, this is a well-known fact. Like, this is something that, you know, Hal, we don't get the sense that Hal and, and Hotspur had a close connection. It's not like they knew each other extremely well, but this is something Hal knows when he's making fun of Hotspur. So like, I'm not of Percy's persuasion that Hotspur at the North, who kills six or seven before breakfast. And, you know, and so this is something that, you know, this is who Hotspur is to the people and everyone knows that he's just... He is so overly ambitious and he is so bloodthirsty and, and yeah, toxic masculinity is a decent word. And even just that, that idea when he's that scene with him and, and Kate, he's like, I don't love you, go away from me. <laughs> and and yes, she pushes back, but he is just single minded.
0: Yeah. Well then uh, then immediately he he apologizes and they he end
1: decides. up yeah. And then there's kind of the that scene with Glendower and then the well and you know the wives and the well singing is a very weird scene in mm-hmm. the play if you look at it as a whole because it does not fit. And suddenly you know Percy is just sex now. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that is that's not your character. Okay, I just I every play needs
0: a musical interlude, I guess. Yes. Uh, well, I think it's if it's not Air, if it's not thanos it's eros alex yeah that is true i guess <laughs> so
1: thanatos thanos was uh
0: yeah thanatos yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> thanatos yes so i think that's we have circled around, around a
1: lot of these plays
0: yeah <laughs> we it's been a wonderful have you on again and talk so much in in depth about these great plays. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And just as as a concluding thought, I think that that's what the history plays allow. Uh, there, are, I mentioned this before, but so there are people who who swear that you know the histories are the best thing that Shakespeare did, and and part of that is because they they offer I think more than the comedies and more than even the tragedies, so much more to dive into, and they allow for absolutely <laughs>
0: <these> lengthy discussions <laughs> so much well thanks again for coming on and uh hopefully we'll see you again for henry v we'll see,
1: uh, the huge blockbuster of it
0: <laughs> exactly
1: bye-bye Bye.